Faith Hibbs-Clark is an acting coach with a very different approach. She's a seasoned casting director and former deception detection body language expert. In other words, she knows when someone's lying and she can teach us how to figure it out as well. We're going to talk to her about that on this episode of OWC Radio. I kid you not, truthfully, for real. Okay, you get the point. Stay tuned. It's time for OWC Radio. Tech Talk with Creatives. Conversations with host Serena Catania. Faith, how are you? I'm so happy to finally, finally get to talk to you. We're both so busy and you've been all over the world since I first started trying to book you on this show. By the way, I want to say thank you to Barry Wayne because he introduced us. So tell me, where are you and what's happening in your life today? Where am I in the world? It's kind of like, uh, where's Waldo or whatever. I seriously have to look at my phone to see what time zone I'm in. It's it's a bit to juggle. I'm currently in Los Angeles and back here in the United States, but I have been on an outreach tour to publicize my acting method, the communication method for actors, sometimes referred to as acting science. And I was in New Zealand. I was in Australia, came back to the United States for a minute, it felt like, and then was in London and then France. Now I'm going to be focusing on covering the United States in more detail. So kind of stopping through various different states here in the U.S. It's been fun. It's been a whirlwind. (laughs) Tell us about that a little bit more. What are you teaching when you're on these tours? I created the Communication Method for Actors. That's my teaching business. And I worked for 25 years as a casting director. I still sometimes cast, but I only do about one or two film projects a year now. My lovely daughter took over the casting company and is doing really, really well with that. What's her name and what's the company? Oh, yes, of course. Bella Hibbs and the company aptly named Good Faith Casting. Obviously, I did the play on words back in the day when I started it up. You know, she worked with me part-time as like a summer job and really worked her way up and just really has an aptitude for it. You know, as a mom, that's just a real pleasure to be able to see your daughter come up in an industry like that. It's a really proud moment. I got to say, I couldn't hire anybody better if I tried kind of make her work for it. You know, it's, you know, she didn't have it easy. She would tell you that. I made her prove herself. That's good. She took the reins and she's moving forward with it. That's really great. Can you tell us a little bit more about your education background and how you really got started? You were born in the UK, right? Yeah. Born on the other side of the pond. If I start thinking about it, my accent will come out because I do deliberately try to speak in an American accent. But if somebody starts talking about England, I start thinking you know, in that life. So it's really kind of interesting. And I was just over there for uh, a conference that I spoke at in London. I was like, oh my gosh, here comes the accent. Yeah, I was born in the UK. And I noticed as a young child that I had sort of this innate ability to be able to know what people were thinking and feeling. And I didn't as a kid, you just don't understand what that is all about. Some people even thought, well, is this kid psychic, you know? Later, I realized that that was, you know, when I got into university in the United States and uh, was taken under the wing by a professor at that particular university who said, you know, I think you have an ability to read body language. And I had never heard any of this before ever. So it sure did make a lot of sense. And this testing that you go through and I scored really well on the testing 
And then I started working in private practice. I wasn't a citizen yet at the time. And I guess they recruit for, you know, FBI and that kind of thing. But I, I couldn't really very well go into that line of work without being a citizen. So I started doing private practice and one referral led to another. You know, you think about it, it's days before the internet really and cell phones and stuff like that. So it was all very, very word of mouth. And so I was working with trial attorneys. I was working with federal agents and things like that and coaching them on, on body language. I kind of got into this vein of clients because, again, it was one person would refer to another and word of mouth. And I started working with various politicians. That would be fun. <laughs> How do you tell when a politician is lying? So my body language area of expertise was the ability to tell when someone's lying or what's commonly referred to as deception detection through body language. And so politicians were coming to me and they were saying like, Faith, how is it that you can tell when someone is lying? And at first it kind of started off as, you know, is my competitor lying? And then it sort of morphed into this situation where they were saying, well, how can I say this? How can I communicate this message and come across as more sincere? But really what they were saying was, how do I lie and get away with it? How do I lie better? Essentially, yeah. I realized that that wasn't the direction I wanted to take my career. But I had this light bulb moment where I realized if only there was an industry that lied for a living. <laughs> so that is like, wow, I got it. Actors lie for a living. I got into casting first because I thought casting would be less stressful. You know, so when I left the world of deception detection and working in politics, I went into casting because just, you know, who I was dating at the time. And I thought it was less stressful. It was so much more stressful than I could have ever imagined. And so as I started working with actors in terms of the casting process, I realized that actors weren't being taught the same things that every other industry teaches, which is these concepts that I now teach to actors, the same concepts that I taught to federal agents, to trial attorneys, to even CEOs and, and people like that, that had something to benefit from kind of knowing the secret sauce of body language and deception detection. So I would have actors come in for auditions and they would just absolutely terrified. And I get that, but I realized they didn't know the secrets that I knew. And because I came into it in such a, you know, backwards sort of way, I didn't realize that other, you know, acting instructors and teachers and whatnot were not teaching these concepts. I quickly learned that that was a void. That was a need. I've been teaching this for mainstream and, and politicians and things like that for a very, very long time. But when I started casting, I realized there was a niche there for actors. And so that grew into the acting science method. As I started pulling away from doing the casting, I divided the companies up. And so it created a new company just for the educational portion of uh, my business. And that was called the communication method for actors. The reason that it's different, the reason that I get so excited even now just talking about it is because it's tangible because it's science. In this business, so much of what these actors are being told is opinion. It's this casting director likes it this way, but this casting director doesn't. You're supposed to do it this way. No, no, no. You're supposed to do it that way. And I feel bad. I really do. I feel bad for actors because they're going, well, okay, how am I supposed to do it? And, and whatever you give them is just another opinion. The classic response that they get 
I'm not believing it. Like, well, okay, who are you and why are you not believing it? Anyway, I don't know anything about this. So this is fascinating. When I give actors information, not only am I coming at it from a, a trained scientist and, you know, the educational component of it, but I'm also coming at it with five plus years of casting experience. So I've been in the trenches. I get it. I understand. But then when I give them some sort of tangible thing that I think is going to make their performance more believable, I'm able to tell them the science behind that. I'm able to tell them why that is going to get the optimum outcome that they're looking for. So it really just fast forwards actors to careers. So I started working with a lot of celebrities. When the pandemic hit, I went online and was able to start working with uh, people who were just beginning their their acting journey so they could start good habits from the (laughs) beginning uh, rather than having to learn some wonky stuff that they would have to unlearn later. So it's just been really fun to see those two worlds kind of come together. Can you unpack some of the details of the kind of things you would be talking with actors about? Give me some examples so I can understand it a little bit better. Yeah, well, this is where it gets kind of fun, right? Without giving away the whole farm, I can give you some some, uh, examples of some things. What most people don't realize is that deception is deeply interwoven in our lives. You know, we come at it from a very moralistic standpoint and we think, well, I'm very honest. I'm a good person. I never lie. The fact of the matter is, in my research work, I identified 13 different types of lies. And so not all lies have malintent. Not all lies are even conscious. You know, some things that we lie about, we don't do on a conscious level, or we don't do them intentionally, or we don't do them for any bad reason. So there's all these different types of lies. And that makes up the fact that, on average, (laughs) according to research, the average person lies 81 times per day. What? 81 times per day. Okay. I'm re I'm rewinding my day and thinking, all right, you have to explain to me when would I have lied today? If I'm sitting here thinking I didn't lie, that would be your one lie that I haven't lied. all day. <laughs> and that's usually what people say is like, I really believe in telling the truth. It's like, well, that's a great concept, but in reality, it's not true. So I guess we should start with, can you define a lie? Yes. Can you define a lie? Because perception is as true for me as it is for you. So one of the examples that I will use when I'm doing a a speaking engagement, if somebody asks me this question is I'll take, you know, I'll take a a nickel and I'll hold it up and I'll say, tell me what you see. And they're like, well, I, uh, I see a nickel. I said, be, you know, be more specific. And they'll say, "Mm, I see a coin and be more specific. Okay. Well, I see a circle and it's silver and it's got a person's head on it. And I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, you liar. Because what they see from their perspective is one side of the truth. I see on the other side, I'm like, well, actually I see a building because there's two different pictures on each side of of the nickel. And I think that's a good analogy for people in life is what we believe is true and what we swear could see it with our own eyes is true. Someone else from some other perspective, is going to see the same thing, but see it differently, therefore their perspective. That is so true, especially with video now and with clips and news. You know, you never know if what you're watching is the full story. I always think I look at a short clip and I go, okay, can I see the rest of it, please? I mean, I've had that happen to me when I was interviewed on television and they took just one tiny piece of what I said and was like, so out of context. 
so, you know, fitting your narrative uh, of what they want, how they want it to go. And of course, I used to have to work with a lot of politicians with, with that kind of thing. But so the, the bottom line is deception is such a big part of our lives. They say that in a 10 minute conversation, you're going to be lied to 10 times in a 10 minute conversation with someone. That's really hard for me to grasp. I'm still sitting here wondering, what did I lie about today? Yeah. So one of the, the biggest ways in which we chalk up all these lies in a day is the self-lie. So the self-lie accounts for a lot of the lies that we have in a day, because a lot of times we don't even see other people in a day. So how are we meeting that quota, right? Um, but that's like when you say, oh, I'm going to work for a morning or even the more destructive types of lies, like I'm not good enough and nobody likes me, these kind of things, right? So the bottom line is that deception is a very key part of our society. And it's really kind of a moving target one of those categories of lies I identified as the entertainment lie. And that's when people lie for the benefit of someone else being entertained. And so that's what actors do. So the entertainment lie, as I call it, is the only lie where the other party is agreeing to being lied to. That's important because most of us don't want to be lied to in our lives, even more than we don't want to be dishonest. We really don't want to be lied to. But the entertainment lie is you're allowed to do that. So the trade-off, though, and sort of the sort of social contract between these two parties of, look, I'm going to lie to you. You know, this is what the actor would say. I'm going to lie to you. And in return, you're going to be entertained. So you're going to be good with it. The trade-off in that is the entertainment has to be believable. The person has to be able to suspend their disbelief long enough to believe that this is really happening. It's funny because there's Pepsi commercials right now where the actors come on and they're like, oh, this is the best soft drink in the whole wide world or am I just lying, you know? I don't know if you've seen those commercials. No, I haven't seen them, but it sounds hilarious, actually. It, it really is because it kind of goes to the point. So what I really focus on with actors is how to use the science to make it more believable. And this is also the same science of how someone like myself, a deception detection expert, can tell when someone is lying. There's a number of ways, and we can go through some of these. How is it that a deception detection expert can see when someone's lying? Well, one of the, the dead giveaways is that they're regulating their emotions in the wrong order. So let me explain that. In real life, when we don't know what we're going to say, we will have a reaction, an emotional reaction to something. And then we will show how we feel about that situation in our bodies. Our bodies are truth detectors. Our bodies are always going to give away our inside emotions. So when you're observing someone and you're asking somebody questions or uh, you're interacting with someone, you're going to see how they feel in their body a split second before. Just, a lot of times it's what we call a micro expression. It's a, about a fifth of a second or a split second. You're going to see it and therefore feel it before they have a thought and articulate that into speech. And that has to do with, you know, our primal versus our evolved brain and how we react to things. So in real life, we're going to see someone's reaction in their body language prior to them forming a thought and saying that thought out loud. When you're observing someone, you know, did you kill your wife? I would never kill my wife. That reaction is happening at the same time. I would never kill my wife. I would never kill my wife. That's at the same time. And that is not how the body regulates. We would see their response in some fashion in their body before they had time to even think of their answer. 
so that would be one way in which we can tell that they're lying. If it comes after, that's a really big sign. I would never kill my wife and then, you know, crocodile tears. Were you watching the Murdoch trial at all? <laughs> no, but the Peterson case, you know, all of them, right? Because it was like, God, note to self, never date a guy whose name is Peterson. I felt like I knew that they were guilty long before anyone else did because I would see these interviews and it's like, wow, it is all over their bodies that they're lying. What we did was we would slow down videos and I would actually point out, watch this, watch this, watch this. A really classic example of that, when Bill Clinton was testifying and he said, I didn't have sexual relations with that woman, right? So everybody's like, oh, do you think he's lying? And they're putting out all these things. I said, 100%, he's lying. I'm like, how can you be so sure? I said, because Bill Clinton is one of only two presidents who is left-handed. Well, why does that matter? Because he pointed with the wrong hand. When we believe something to be true, if I'm right-handed, so I'm going to point with this hand. Oh, you better believe it. But he's left-handed, so he should have pointed with the other hand. So it's these things that come out in our bodies that tell the truth. That split second, whatever that thing is that happens in somebody's body that we can see as deception detection experts. And if it comes first or slightly before the speech, then there's a good chance that there's some truth to that. It's not 100% because we look for clusters. But if it's at the same time or if it comes after, it's, it would be what we would you know, consider an indicator. Some people call them red flags, et cetera. But something about it is going to feel off. Even to the layperson who watches that and says, I don't know, I just feel like they're not telling the truth. And that's because you, me, everyone has this innate ability to read body language at a subconscious level. And we do it all the time because I'm sure you've had situations where you've met someone in like you didn't like them right away. Well, that was well, you reading body language. You know? I'm thinking of one particular politician who I will not name. Of course. <laughs> when I was watching the close-ups of them during this campaign, but my reaction to him was, this is a really evil person. And it was because there was no emotion in his eyes at all. I don't know what I was looking at and why I was thinking that that was deceptive in some way, but it just didn't match because he was talking really animated and, you know, all about the wonderful things that he was going to do, but but his eyes weren't saying it. Am I wrong about that? First of all, you are an expert in it because everyone is deeply rooted in our DNA is not only our own life experiences, but the experiences of our ancestors. And so the meaning behind body language, you know, the, the definitions of you do this, it means this, that comes from arguably hundreds of thousands of years of DNA. So process that information at a subconscious level. In fact, most things that we process in a day is at a subconscious level. The human brain is taking in 200 trillion bits of sensory data every second every second, 200 trillion. And we retain momentarily 2000. So we go from 2 trillion to 2000 bits of information every second. So that means that 95% of what we experience in a day, we are experiencing at a subconscious level. So when you meet somebody and you don't like them, or in this case, you watch this politician and you didn't get a good feel for them, You're not recalling the 200 trillion bits of information that your brain took in. You're recalling from that 2,000 bits of information that you took in. But that doesn't mean to say that your brain doesn't have that data. Your brain does have that data. It will draw on that data. And it will just simply send a message to you that 
you shouldn't trust this person. You know, they give all the credit to the gut. <laughs> so my daughter's a neurological research scientist, so I, I really respect everything that you had to go through to get your degrees. It's quite grueling, but it's really wonderful. I wish I knew more about it. It's really fun. So at a very core level, actors are learning the reverse engineer of deception. Those lines that are on their script, that's not real. The character that they're trying to portray, it's not real. They know it's not real. Our job is to get the audience to believe that it is real. So I have to reverse engineer this process of how do I tell when someone is lying to be able to them to perform in a way that is consistent with not appearing to be lying. And of course, that's what the politicians wanted. And that's what I instead give to actors. So that's what you've been doing when you've been traveling around. You've been doing workshops with actors all around the world, literally. Now you're in L.A. And where did you say you're going next? So I'm going to start going across the United States now. I'm just making the internal tour now. You know, I talked to a lot of actors from around the world, got to see how things are a little bit different in different countries, different, you know, different rules, different unions, different, you know, kind of the, the business side of things were a little bit different. I did a conference in Australia, in Ballarat, Australia. So it was all academics. So it was all focused on different teachers and their research projects and uh, the emerging methods uh, around the world. And so that was really quite an honor to be there with some of the greatest minds in the arts, very academic level, uh, presenting our research papers. So that was really exciting. Oh, that would be. You reminded me a moment ago, I wrote something down, cultural differences in body language. Just even in my own life, I was raised in Europe, half Sicilian, half Belgian, very demonstrative when I talk. And in America, sometimes you're misunderstood because you tend to have different body language. So how do you modify what you're teaching or do you modify what you're teaching based on the cultural basis of that particular person? Or how does that work? Well, you're absolutely right. The cultural differences do impact deception detection, that different people will show different emotions and different thoughts in different ways in different cultures. For example, Actually, coming back from Australia, I don't like flying for long, long periods of time. I get really antsy. So I try to break up my trips when I'm flying. So poor me, I, I stopped in Fiji on the way Aww. back to It's right there. It's right there. It's right in the middle. So like, what could I do? I had to do it, right? And I would ask some of the beautiful, lovely Fiji people, I would ask them questions and they wouldn't answer me. I was like, so is there a shuttle <laughs> to the airport? <laughs> you know, I was trying to be patient. But so later I learned that in Fiji, they will answer yes by raising their eyebrows. So they won't say yes. They'll just raise their eyebrows, you know, but I didn't know that. And so once you obviously, you know, that then the rest is history. I would think that Botox isn't very popular in Fiji because then no one would be able to say yes. They would all be like, no, or maybe. That's so funny. I don't remember noticing. I went to Fiji to scout location on a film many years ago. I don't remember that, but yeah. Well, maybe you didn't know, but you were like, why is nobody answering? You are reverse engineering for these actors what kind of reaction are you getting from them? It's got to be difficult. By and large, I mean, the reason it's taken off so much, especially with celebrities, is it's a game changer. It's like suddenly everything that they understood 
makes sense. So it's really beautiful to see their reactions when I'll explain something like what I just explained to you, which is emotional regulation would show the the reaction in your body and in your facial expressions, even for a moment before you would even have the thought. Then there's the thought formation. Then there's the speech. When they hear explained that way, it's like you see their eyes and their faces light up because like, oh my goodness, I've always felt that way, but now it makes so much sense. Why? And I think it's very freeing for them. I spend a lot of time working on the power of gaze, you know, talking about our eyes. A lot of our body language is in the eyes. Like you said, when you were talking about that politician, you know, they had that, what I call the disassociative gaze, where they just, the light on and no one was home. So we get into that nitty gritty detail. And one of the things I tell actors is you don't get cast because you're good. You're like, what do you mean? If I'm good, I'm going to get cast. I'm like, no, you get cast if you're the best. You have to be better than everyone else. And what makes you better than everyone else is going to come down to those little details, details that maybe they can't even explain, like how you couldn't explain why you didn't like the politician, but it didn't change your decision about that person. You were sure of it. And that was you were sticking to it. And that's how it is when somebody watches an actor's audition tape, their self tape or their audition or whatnot, is they're going to have a gut reaction to that. Where I can help the actor is I know how to get a specific gut reaction out of someone. I know the exact detail of human behavior that's going to get you exactly what you want from them. If you want somebody to like you, if you want them to believe you, if you want them to not believe you, I can tell you the exact human behavior to make that happen. What if they're doing an audition tape and they're just really nervous? Does that affect anything? Yeah. Nobody wants to sign up for someone who's nervous. Unless the character is nervous. Nervousness is the kiss of death. You know, you're you're put in a judgment position. It's very unnatural, you know, getting in front of a camera and lights and all this stuff. Like, I get it. But you have to be able to trick your brain into believing that this is real. So part of what happens when I teach them these concepts of how it is that you can be perceived in a believable way, they're going to start doing those things. And guess what happens? It's like a bonus prize. It tricks their brain into thinking it is real. And if it's real, what do they have to be nervous about? So it has like all of these added bonuses that come along with it because it is science. And the beauty of science, just like nature, is it all works together. One thing is connected to another, is connected to another. So the synergy there is just amazing. In life, can you tell when you run across somebody who's psychopathic or narcissistic? Can you tell? Can you as a human being watching another human being? Because, you know, a lot of us can't tell until we're we're (laughs) deep into it. You know, first of all, one in 25 people are sociopathic. Not bodies in the basement, sociopathic per se. You know, there's the old argument of nature, nurture, you know, their nature may be, you know, inclined towards sociopathy, but, you know, maybe they were nurtured in a way that helps them to control it. I forget the exact statistic, but most CEOs of companies are on a sociopath scale. And that's just a fact. So we interact with sociopaths on a regular basis. How do you spot them? Well, <laughs> I loved your reaction when I asked you that question. Well, only because I've, I've been married three times. I've successfully completed three marriages. So if there's a sociopath out there, I will. Them, you know? 
And probably marry him. I need this lesson too. (laughs) There are ways if you choose to pay attention. I don't always pay attention, you know. Oh, he's so gorgeous. I'm missing all the signs. Full-blown sociopath. You know, it's funny because uh, those types of men, though, are really drawn to me, really attracted to me. And my explanation for that is to do what I do, I have to be very empathetic to read people, to watch body language, even to mentor and coach actors. You have to be very empathetic. You have to really care. Um, And so they, with their lack of genuine empathy and some emotions, they're obviously going to be drawn to someone that is very empathetic. So one of the things I tell women who ask me this question is that, and that's obviously my experience, right? As a woman. But what I tell other women is that you have to be very, very alert. You have to kind of put your emotions to the side and really try to see this person for who they are. And and there's a couple of rules of thumb. On the first date, they will inevitably tell you everything you need to know about who they are. Okay. Well, if that's true, Faith, why is there a problem? The problem is we ain't listening. Naturally, the human brain will process visual stimulus before it processes the auditory. And I teach this to um, my actors is that we perceive visual as an emotional response and we perceive auditory as an intellectual response. And based on our human evolution, visual is primal. Therefore, visual is emotional, therefore is primal. So we're going to react to that first. So on those first dates, we're going to be so wrapped up in the visual, how good looking this person is or or how we find them sexually attractive in some way, whatever that may be. But we're so busy watching them. And that makes sense because that's part of our survival instinct. You know, if this person displays visual cues that they're of danger to us, then we're going to hopefully run, right? And we're going to get out of that situation. But the problem, we're in such high alert visually that we are not listening. And they will always tell you everything about themselves in that first interaction. So that's the first thing. You got to (laughs) listen, really, really listen to what they're saying. Yeah. We don't relax on the hypervigilance of the visual stimulation that we were looking at until about the fifth date. And then we start to hear their flaws. Oh, wait, what do you mean you live in a casita behind your mom's house and that your ex is actually still living with you? And that you have how many dogs? And, and you, <laughs> what do you mean parole? But they likely indicated or said that all of that in their first interaction. So it's just knowing how the brain works. You know, even falling in love, the same chemicals are pumped into our brain and therefore our limbic system when we're falling in love with someone literally makes us stupid. We don't hear, we don't rationalize. It shuts down all of these very important parts of our brain that keep us safe. And that is because evolutionarily, we were meant to breed. And if we listen, pay attention too long, we might not do that. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, it's like the saying, you only hear what you want to hear. What do you say to people who talk about the new generation of narcissists? A lot of people are saying, for example, poor millennials are always being maligned, right? They're all, we're breeding a generation of narcissists. How do you feel about that? Have you noticed that? My two daughters are millennials. So, you know, I love them dearly. And I think one of the reasons I'm asking you, because you're an expert at this, is how can we, as people who respect them and want to communicate more clearly with them, What advice can you give 
an older person, like a baby boomer. I'm a baby boomer. So if I'm talking to a millennial as a baby boomer, and I want them to know that I don't have any adverse intention with them, you know, like, for example, I'd really like to learn more about how they feel about things. And it helps me to know them better. But how do I, as a person who's interviewing a lot of millennials, how do I do that? Can I ask you that question? Well, let's go back a little bit to kind of the sentiment, at least, of your first question. Every society, every generation of people, and definitely, I think, even wider than the actual brackets that we put around generations, right? So I think it's a bit wider than that. You know, arguably, Gen X is is, is pretty self-focused, too. But really, what does that mean to be narcissistic or, or, or self-absorbed or to put yourself first? You know, that could be considered a survival instinct that could be, you know, finally creating boundaries that are healthier. I mean, really, each generation is getting much more aware of what is right and what is not right in the entertainment industry. For example, the Me Too movement, women speaking up when they're inappropriately propositioned or when they're offered jobs based on sexual favors, things like that. That is the result of a certain amount of a sense of self and what some people might refer to to narcissism. You know, is it narcissistic to to create these boundaries, to keep themselves in the safe place? For me, looking at it from a behavioral scientist perspective, it's that story of the generation is changing. And story in itself is science. It is what shapes our society and our generation. Because story from a scientific perspective, is the neural pathways that form your personal experience in your life. And then we're herd animals. So you then are going to be around other people and you're going to find people who are similar to you, you know, birds of a feather flock together, all of that. Those overall brain patterns are changing. And that is what I think some older adults or adults from a different generation then this up and coming young generation have to understand is that those story patterns, those brain images are changing. And so for about 2000 years, stories, you know, my brain story, your brain story comes together. We have a conversation. We like each other. uh, We decide to be friends. We decide to be work together. We decide to form relationships, et cetera. That's a process called neurocoupling. And neurocoupling is our innate human nature of seeking out other people who are like us. You know, they say nothing brings two people together better than a common enemy. Again, it's a negative sense, but that's bringing those patterns together. So we in the entertainment industry are taking story and using it as a form of communication to shape and mold these emotional packages of of human experience, right? So that's why we have movies. And then when we talk about movies, we talk about formula movies. We talk about, you know, Marvel movies. Oh, they're just so, you know, they're just formula movies, but they work. They work. Formula movies work. Formula movies make money for a reason because they mirror the patterns of that generation's mind. That's why when we watch really, really old, outdated stuff, we're like, how is that funny? Really, seriously, how is that? Like, and how is that believable? Good God, what are you doing? But it was that pattern of that generation. That pattern changes about every two to 4,000 years, according to anthropologists. So in the very beginning, we had very simple, basic story patterns in our brains, you know, as we were Neanderthals and sucking the bone marrow out of carcasses, we were really at the bottom of the food chain. So it was very cause and effect. 
Then we went into a generation of, of human beings. Well, we want to know a little bit more. So cause, effect, and, or we want to know what happened before. So simple story of beginning, middle, and an end. We're currently, at least our generation of people, would be in sort of the story arc that we talk about in movies, where we talk about, you know, emotional hook, exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, resolution, et cetera. Okay, so that's what we're used to. We're used to having a story that starts a certain way and ends a certain way, and we're supposed to get what we want out of it right here, right? That is not where we're at with the new generation that's coming in. That's called complex story formula. We're now moving into super complex story formula. Now, what that means is the young people coming up are used to that pattern, the kind of the story arc, for lack of a better word, but the story arc all the time extended over time. This really spans more like 2,000 years, 4,000 years, somewhere more in that range than millennials, Gen X, babies. So this generation is all about immediate gratification that is continual and endless. They're not really used to seeing the world as, oh, here's where we're at and here's where we're going to be at. That's not how they see it. They see it as everything now, you know, everything right now, all at once. Communicate with that generation. You're expecting an answer. You're expecting, oh, here's the beginning. Here's the end, because that's how we were trained to think. That's not how they think. For them, it's a constant moving target. That's why we have social media. That's why we have binge watching Netflix, you know, everything all at once. And so when you're communicating with somebody that that is their brain patterns are, are in that way, you know, it does become very transactional. What can you do for me right now? Because that is their story moment. There's no happy ending. It's what can you do for me right now? It's how the brain is evolving. You know, we've got AI now that can write things for us. Uh, we have social media. We have binge watching. We can literally watch a gazillion channels all at once if we want to. You know, AI that scans the internet and pulls everything that you could ever need to know, or at least 10% of it. And then that's only going to grow. So what's the direction we're going in? This is a really long answer to your question, but... I'm fascinated. I love talking to you about this. This is totally off the subject, but I'm going to indulge myself. Do you believe that it is capable for the human brain to multitask. I'll tell you why I'm asking that question, because I don't think it's possible. I think that what we have are micro moments where we're switching between things, but people say I can multitask, you know, like we say women, we can multitask. We can do more than one thing at a time. And yeah, we can bunch them up in quicker elements. I'm just curious. This is just a personal question (laughs) that I have. Well, they, you know, they always say that women are better at multitasking. And likely that has really more to do with our DNA and our, our neural pathways. The way I just explain this is as we go through life, we form neural pathways. Let's take, for example, brushing our teeth. We have a certain hand that we use to brush our teeth. Our neural pathways have formed that imprint into our brain if this is how we brush our teeth. Maybe we rush it. Maybe we take a little longer if we've had some you know, candy or something, but that's how we do it. We know how to do it. When we try to change that, like maybe brush your teeth with your other hand is like really hard to do because that's going against our natural neural pathways. You know, if you think about neural pathways as erosion down a mountain, like the erosion pass when it rains, that's what our brains are like. And so as we go through life, we're forming those pathways. So when it rains again on a mountain, Where's the rain going to go? Well, it's going to go down the same pathways, the path of least resistance. It would take a lot of rain 
to change how the rain comes down that mountain because it's already formed pathways. And, and the brain just is kind of lazy. And so the brain just wants to, to follow those pathways. When you ask it to, to multitask, yes, I think you can multitask if you have already preformed neural pathways where it can flow easily. Yeah. You can't multitask and learn new pathways at the same right. time, at least not as easily and certainly not as effectively. So if it's stuff that you've chalked up to muscle memory, like I can multitask, I can drive and I can put my lipstick on. Well, you can argue whether I should, but anyway, <laughs> I've been there, done that. <laughs> those things already have formed neural pathways, right. whereas, you know, something that would require a sense of neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to regrow neural pathways. And that comes from learning and flooding the senses uh, and the receptors. So, and that's part of what I do in my courses, just to kind of bring it back on topic is I flood those actors with sensation of what is possible, not just about learning to do the same thing, you know, it's about evolving. You know, they always say that um, our brain is only designed to truly do two things. One is survive and one is evolve. Survival is you going down that neural pathway the same way you've always done it. That's survival because that's safe. You know what's going to happen. I think this is why we go out with the same crappy types of men. Until you recognize that it's a pattern and really change up your, your thinking you're going to keep getting attracted to the same kind of crappy relationships because your brain knows how that story ends. Your brain's like, well, I know how to do this. <laughs> so think back on your recent tour and find something that is a wonderful memory for you. Like what is a, a win for you in this last tour? Do you have a person that you can think of or something in a person's life that was changed that you feel really good about? I would love to hear about that. Oh, gosh, just so many, though. That's I have to say, I am sure that you are affecting a lot of people's lives positively with what you do. This is really cool. I had a feeling it was going to be fun talking to you, but it really is. I think you're doing good in the world. Happiness is so important. And what you're doing is really, I think, making people better at what they do, which makes them happy. And mm -hmm. that's a wonderful thing. It's truly what I want. I know people say this and they don't mean it, but I feel like I could make a lot of money doing a lot of things. Sure. I feel so strongly about those moments when you see the actor, the light comes on in their eyes and you see them see the hope because really what I'm doing, I'm shaving off all this time. They could probably get to everything that I'm teaching to them through trial and error in about 10 years and I can get them done in like two months. So doing that never gets old absolutely love what I do. You found what you're supposed to do. That's wonderful. Exactly. Faith, this has been really fun. Thank you. I'm glad we finally connected and I do hope to have you back on again. I just want to say thank you to everybody listening because I know that it's going to be really interesting for everyone and fun for everyone to hear this interviews and to our audience. Remember what I tell you every episode, get up off your chairs and go do something wonderful today. Wherever it is or whatever you decide to do, just make it wonderful. She's Faith Hibbs Clark. I'm Serena Catania, and you've been listening to OWC Radio. Have a wonderful day, and thank you.